This is how we overcome We're moving out Keep us up Reaching to the world Arms open Arms open Yeah This is how we practice Welcome back to Crazy Bait Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we're in the beginning of a, our new series for the season of Lent, uh, in which we are talking about temptations and the temptations that Jesus faced. Um, and we focused on those last week and then some, t- some of the temptations that we as Christians in the church face today. So Sarah, where are we going to take today's episode? So today we are going to continue our conversation about temptation to worldly power. Um, That was one of the temptations that Jesus faced um, that, you know, the the devil takes him up to a high mountaintop, shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, if you but worship me, I will give you power and authority over all of this. It's a very Mufasa moment. Right, <laughs> going onto the top of the rock to show baby Simba, like this someday this will all be yours, or you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and everything um, the light touches, everything the light touches, <laughs> and um, and yeah, so that's kind of the moment that the devil is doing with Jesus at that moment. Um, but that that is a <clears throat> pretty real temptation, I think, even for us of worldly power, like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that is something that we all struggle with in some degree, um, that we want to have power and authority and recognition. And like, those sometimes sound like very good things. So, mm-hmm. you know, what do we do with that? Yeah, yeah. I'm and- so appreciative of the way you framed it that way, because it feels like of all the temptations... I don't have, honestly, I I don't operate on a day-to-day basis that if I jump from a high tower or a high place, an angel will come and get me. And I don't think that's a lack of faith. I think I just fallen off too many ladders to know, nope, I can get hurt in this life. And I don't believe that I have the miraculous power to turn uh, rocks into bread. I've burnt some bread so that it was like as hard as a rock the other way around, but I have not done stones into bread. But this one feels like, yeah, we could do this. We could have power we could be the ones who rule and reign and that it feels maybe the most alluring because it is the most uh realistic to imagine us accomplishing and i think sometimes there's good like desires behind it too right Mm -hmm. like if i just ran the world this problem would be taken care of because i wouldn't allow that to happen right right like that's often the mindset that we that we get like, oh man, if I ran the world, I would make this thing simpler or easier for everybody to do or to accomplish or to achieve. Um, I wouldn't let them run political ads quite so often. Like, you know, it's things like that. Like those are often good things that we could maybe accomplish if we just had the power to do it. And as we look back in history, like in, in, in the 300s, Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire, which I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't ask Constantine his thoughts on why he did that. And <laughs> I'm assuming that I'm hopeful, maybe, that there was an inkling of that was intended for good. And I'm sure. I think. I think in some ways that's what's even scarier to me is that every time people have 
launch on this project of in the name of Christianity, well, in the name of all that's good, we should grab power for ourselves. Everybody does it smiling, convinced that this is good and righteous. And I'm sure that uh, from Constantine's perspective, it's, you know what, we're going to have less religious infighting because we're going to, one, we're going to stop feeding these Christians to lions. That's a no-brainer. But let, yeah, let's make this the official. We can have unity as an empire. We'll all have the same practice. Mm -hmm. We'll get the Christians to sort out that whole Aryan thing. We'll decide, you know, we'll, we'll get them to sort out what they believe about Jesus and a creed. And like, we'll have uniformity and we'll all believe the same thing. It'll be easier for unity's sake. Uh, and we'll just enforce it at the point of a sword. Um, and and um, I'm sure, I'm sure it was marketed to the church at, at the time as this is good for you and therefore good for the world. Therefore, we should do it. We should let Christianity be the official religion of the empire. The other thing that happened at that moment, though, that I don't know... I don't know that people who wrote at the time reflected a lot on before it was happening. Certainly you get some pushback in the early, very, very first centuries. Like the moment the empire claims Christianity for itself, that also means that now the empire can ask you to fight and kill in the name of Christianity, right? So like mm -hmm. Constantine's legend was that he had a vision and a voice appeared to him in a vision saying, you will conquer in this sign. And the sign was that Cairo, the the, the XP symbol, you know, the, the Christian symbol that's the monogram of Christ. And at that point, the the idea becomes, yeah, Christianity will now conquer and, be, and the soldiers of the empire will bear the logo of Christianity. Interesting that they couldn't bring themselves to put the cross on their shields. It was still too painful a reality that they had crucified Jesus, but sort of this other Christian logo, the Cairo logo. But like that idea of not just we're going to tolerate people to be Christians and not feed them to lions anymore. I would have been happy if that's where they stopped, right? We should stop feeding people to mm -hmm. lions. We should stop persecuting and murdering Christians. Great. I think we all could have said that would have been a fine solution. Um, but moving then beyond that to now, we will uh, get Christians to uh, fight for the empire. And whatever the empire says is a just cause, well, good Christians now have to get in line and say, yeah, if it's in the name of the empire, after all, the empire is a Christian empire. So whatever it does must be holy and righteous. And in that moment, uh, the institution of the church, to the extent that it was wedded to the empire, lost the ability to critique the empire and say, wait a second, maybe invading the Visigoths is not a righteous thing. Or maybe, um, you know, murdering these people you call barbarians, maybe that's not holy. And maybe you can't co-opt uh, Christianity to justify whatever the empire wants to do. And to me, like that was a, a huge watershed um, that I'm not sure anybody realized at the moment. Yeah, that's that's cost of what's going to happen if you do this. It, it's even more nefarious when you go a couple of centuries later when the empire collapses as an empire, but to hold order together in a the fragments of what used to be an empire, you end up with the church controlling territory and getting things like the papal states around uh, you know what becomes Vatican City or or organizing um, uh, crusades right. So later on we get you know a thousand years after Jesus, give or take, an era where. Christians uh, are are corralled across Europe to go and retake or reconquer the land of Israel and Palestine, which had fallen under the rule of um, uh, basically like uh, Arab states uh, after the rise of Islam. And now it becomes we have to take our land, the Holy Land, back um, and all done in the name of 
Christ and Christ's service. We have to do this. We have to go retake this land for Jesus or in the name of Jesus. That feels like that also doesn't pass the smell test. Whenever I hear of people trying to spread Christianity, especially from the point of a sword, Mm-hmm. I just think of that weird moment in the um in the garden mm-hmm. where Peter, I think I think it's Peter, draws yep. some sword and cuts off right. a guy's ear. And um Jesus has to like say, No, that's not that's not what I'm about. Like right. right. No, let me heal this guy's ear real quick. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just think of that moment of Jesus literally saying, That's not what I'm about. Um, and the people still is like, yep, this is a good idea. Now here's a sword. I'm going to like stick you with it. If you don't become a Christian. What, what gets me too, is there were early theologians who recognized that exact point and said it. And then they just got sort of silenced or stifled after Constantine, like uh, Tertullian was one of my favorite early church theologians who later became heretic for other reasons. Um, but Tertullian <laughs> has this famous line. He says, when Jesus disarmed Peter in the garden, he disarmed all Christians. Um, and like Tertullian took that to mean that like, we don't accomplish God's agenda by uh, killing, stabbing, shooting. You know, that's not how God's kingdom gets accomplished. Um, and so let's not pretend that we are authorized by Jesus in the name of Christianity to go, killing our enemies or converting our enemies at the point of a sword. Mm-hmm. There are those early Christian witnesses who saw that, that that episode in the Gospels wasn't just, here's an interesting historical episode, but that it meant something for Christian practice. And then once Constantine had opened floodgates to, nope, we're going to put put the we're gonna put Christian logos on our swords and shields and go kill in the name of Jesus, a thousand years later in the Crusades, everybody was all comfortable with that idea. Yeah, if it's for a righteous cause, yeah, we can go conquer this land. We can go take it back. Um, and even though taking it back meant Europeans going to Palestine to take to conquer the land rather than like its original inhabitants getting to live there. But this is about Europeans going in the name of liberating it. Um, I guess to me, that's the other, the, the other thing that, that's nefarious about that whole episode, that so often the, the talk around the Crusades was that uh we're liberating it we're we're setting it free and we're in and how easily um conquest when it gets marketed as liberation um it's easy to justify doing terrible things when you're convinced you're doing it for a righteous cause there's that line of blaze pascal who says nobody does evil so cheerfully as people who are convinced they're doing it for a godly cause (laughs) um and like to me that that haunts me because uh, just because I have a good feeling that I'm doing something righteous does not mean I am. It might be I'm even more deluded. It mean it might mean I'm all the more persuaded uh, by the powers of evil. Good thing that only happens in the past and doesn't right. happen at all today <laughs> in any no. way. Right. right. So no. like this, this is the challenge. It's relatively easy in hindsight to go, Constantine, you don't know, even for your good intentions, what you unleash. It's relatively easy to say, yep, the, the abuses that were... Uh, n- inescapably entangled in the crusades that was a, a a wrong call to make and we could list others the salem witch trials or we could criticize um other moments in in history mm-hmm. centuries ago the harder part is taking a look in our own day and saying like where are we tempted to play this same game all over again even if it's in slightly different terms i think it's often when we have good intentions but our good intentions 
mean that other people have to do what we think or say or do when they don't want to. Like when we try to force others to do whatever, I think is where we often go off the path that I think Jesus is setting out for us. Yeah. So like to, to follow the analogy from a little bit ago, if you lived in the fourth century and you are the emperor Constantine and you see, boy, for a long time, we've been murdering Christians and lighting them on fire to light our streets and uh, putting them in the gladiator contest. We should stop doing that. We shouldn't kill people for their faith because we made them into our enemy. That feels like that's a solid move. What if we just have a policy of not feeding people to lions, but it's that move beyond that too. And on top of that, now we're going to enforce everybody has to do this and Everybody has to do this on pain of punishment or jail time or death or persecution or something. Mm-hmm. Now we've moved into an abuse. Is that that throws the line? Yeah, yeah. Like I don't think <clears throat> swords are not our go-to weapons anymore. <laughs> right? Luckily, luckily, <laughs> that's not our go-to weapons anymore. But we have other ways to punish people for not doing what we want them to do right like Mm -hmm. we can make laws and if you don't follow the law that is set in um one group's christian ideals they are imprisoned or fined or whatever that is a type of sword right so um the 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 example that i keep coming to mind is the um is the new abortion laws where mm-hmm. it they're they're so strict of like it has to be like the only legal abortions if there are legal abortions are like have to be before six weeks are which are nearly impossible there's really no wiggle room or gray area for cases of rape or incest or um even like um health issues like there's just so little wiggle room and it's all usually said with the idea of christian beliefs and um about life and murder and all all of these things which makes it difficult when you're like not everyone in that area or that state is necessarily christian um as well as it doesn't leave any wiggle room for other like context and scenarios as to like why you might want an abortion right like there there's a lot of a lot of different strands in this argument um but it's off those strands are often tried to be silenced mm-hmm. by christian groups who are like no because um the commandments because of et cetera et cetera um and it's almost in that area that one very specific area of our of our society is trying to make everyone follow a certain christian ideal well and you might even push there that like within christianity there is not a universal consensus on that particular question as there isn't in judaism as well so like when people sort of push back and go well the whole you know judeo-christian tradition says this well that's not exactly true either. And of course, classically, mm-hmm. Judaism has wrestled with questions of uh, health of the mother versus life of the infant to be born. And at what point the life of the mother supersedes and at what point in pregnancy that shift happens about where the, the emphasis or protection needs to go. That like recognizing that nuance 
um, that it's always harder to recognize nuance. It's always harder to recognize shades of gray and that things are complex. And it's always more tempting to say, in the name of righteousness, it's this or this, and everybody has to fit that mold. And there are some things in life that are just that crystal clear. And then there are some things that aren't. That That's a yeah, I think you've helpfully pointed out that's thorny and difficult in just saying, well, all Christians must believe this and therefore a majority are Christians, so we should make everybody do this. You get into real trouble real quick. Right. It, it's it's there's just so many different gray areas in that in that issue. But I think for me, how it does relate to this conversation about worldly power is we've now kind of weaponized the law. And that is now our mm -hmm. sword, just as Constantine yeah. or the Crusades used actual swords to try to get people to conform to the Christian religion. Sure, sure. We're trying to make a theocracy out of a nation that was never meant to be a theocracy. Sure, that too. Sure, sure. <laughs> and yeah, so like it, it's worth noting that uh, in voices in, in the contemporary landscape that we live in that talk about, you know, we should make things you know, good and God-fearing and take the country back for God. Like, everybody does that smiling, convincing they're being good and holy and righteous. Um, and yet, it seems like with a woeful ignorance of every time people have tried that before, that goes sideways, that goes badly. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, it, it just because you have good intentions doesn't mean it was a good idea. But yeah, how how easily we end up saying that we should only make room for people who are our kind of, and how often it becomes our kind of Christian too, to recognize there's a wide variety within Christianity. And unless you're trying to go back to an earlier time before the great schism, you know, if you're trying to go back to even before there's a Orthodoxy and Roman Catholic split, um, you know, like there, there's, there's a divergence and wideness in Christianity that everybody seems to assume my personal brand of Christianity is what we should enforce for everybody. Um, and notice how many different ways that's been played out badly, too. That it's not just we picked the wrong Christian sect to put in power. Uh, and just if we could find the right one, it would work. But every time, you know, whether it was the, um, the, the, the Reformation folks burning the Anabaptists back in Europe in the 1600s, or uh, the persecution that led colonists to come to the New World um, to escape persecution back in Europe, and then persecuting each other here in mm -hmm. the colonies. Like, we've tried this in so many different models, and it's not about, well, it, what happens if you put these people in charge? Nope, it turns out they kill other people and make bad mistakes. What if you put these people in charge? We keep making the same mistakes, and whether it's as you point out, Sarah, whether it's the literal threat of death or imprisonment or other kind of legal confines, it's that same temptation. We can make the world righteous by forcing people who don't agree with us to do what we tell them to do. And because we're doing it in the name of righteousness, it must be righteous. Um, we, we Maybe we don't realize we've never gotten that right before. So the the challenge then, and I'm not looking to to play devil's advocate, but the challenge becomes um, a a possible uh, response to that that abuse in the past and say, okay, then we keep them always separate. There's always there's the secular state does what it's going to do, and the church always does what it's going to do, and they keep it separate. And you can end up with the church saying we can only talk about spiritual things, and we never say anything that actually affects people's day to day lives. In the name of we want it, we don't want to abuse power. Um, and again, like uh, there have been plenty of times in history where 
cautious of the church abusing its power and taking over, the church just said, well, okay, then we will just sort of like hide our heads in the sand and say nothing. Um, and that's difficult too, because that feels like that's another way of protecting ourselves rather than the Jesus-like thing, which sometimes he would risk his neck and say something that was going to get him into trouble. Um, I guess I wonder like how, how do we navigate that? How do we avoid the temptation of the, the inverse temptation of I don't want to abuse power, so I will never say anything that uh, actually affects people's lives, and I'll only talk about pie in the sky by and by. <laughs> yeah, that I feels think... icky too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and to me, like it feels like maybe that that if if this is the conversation we're having, it's the right conversation to have. That we've got to figure out how do you avoid both of those dangers, right? We shouldn't be the empire decreeing everybody has to do what we say mm -hmm. we shouldn't be saying "Ooh, uh we should <clears throat> say nothing then ever because um we don't want to accidentally abuse power but maybe there is this place for the church to see itself as the minority report is that always that voice from the margins as like i'm not we're not ones claiming to have power and that we should dictate but like here's our perspective here's a vo our voice now to me i'm not looking to sell a, a, a book that i mentioned a couple of uh episodes back in our uh, series <laughs> about um uh, books that have been important to us. But if there's one thing that has stuck with me from the, the book I mentioned a while back uh, from Resident Aliens by uh, Stanley Hauerlaas and William Willimont, it's that image of the church has a unique voice and role in the world um, as the community of Jesus. But that's not either to stick our heads in the sand and say nothing, but it's also not to be the voice saying we should be in charge and empower and decree everything, but always intentionally sort of on, on the margins and sort of owning our weirdness of... Mm -hmm. This won't make sense to the rest of the world unless you're a follower of Jesus who gets God's reign doesn't come at the point of the sword, but in suffering love. But here's what our perspective is. And therefore, that's why we want to care for our neighbor. That's why we want to advocate policies that uh, you know are just for all people and that kind of thing. But that that's not a, and therefore we should build an empire on it, but it's also, we shouldn't ever say anything. And I, I, I don't know always what that looks like, but to me, that's, that to me feels like it's in the right ballpark at least. I, I think for me, it's also the dividing line between what am I doing mm -hmm. versus like my expectation that everybody th should therefore also do it. Oh, that's mm -hmm. okay. Say more. And and I and I think that especially my role as pastor, yeah, part of what I am called to do is to proclaim and to teach of like this is what Jesus would do. Mm -hmm. Like if I have the you know the WW. JD, JD <laughs> bracelet mm -hmm. like what would Jesus do um bracelet like I can say hey from scripture I think we can learn we can like surmise that Jesus mm -hmm. would do this or that mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. in this context um but I shouldn't ever have the expectation that just because I say that that means that everyone is going to listen yeah. Right. Like I shouldn't ever have that expectation. Um, but it doesn't mean that I can't try to live my life in the mm -hmm. way that God is calling me to do. Mm -hmm. I just shouldn't expect that everyone in my town or everyone in my state or country is going to agree and also do those things. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that feels like that's that's what I have in mind when I talk about owning our weirdness, that like it's sort of a here's what I'm going to do. Here's where I'm convinced. And I can't make other people do it. I'm willing to be different and have other people look at me weird sometimes because my priorities will look different from the rest of the world. But that sense of if I'm going to persuade people, it will be because they see the way I live, speak and act and are compelled to find out about how 
what what gives you that perspective not because i've enforced a law that makes other people do what i want them to do mm-hmm. or use pressure to make other people do it mm-hmm. that line seems important that it's about uh, we won't use coercion we won't use that sort of everybody has to do what i want but that willingness to let our lives be what becomes compelling to people yeah and i think for me it's also knowing like this is what the ideal is mm-hmm. that this is the kingdom of god that we are working towards that we are hopeful for and it mm-hmm. hopefully maybe looks like this mm-hmm. like this ideal ideal yeah. situation but we currently are living in an already but not yet world yeah. mm-hmm. where there's still sin and there's still so many gray areas and so also letting there be so much grace yeah in that gray area that um you know try trying to give other people and myself that grace of knowing hey we're all imperfect and you might have the best intentions here and you're falling short because you're human and you mess up. Um, But that doesn't mean that you're evil. It's Mm -hmm. just, it means that you have fallen short trying to reach this ideal Mm -hmm. that is nearly impossible. And so giving, giving each other grace in those moments as we just continue to try to do better. It reminds me, since you mentioned that that piece about the kingdom, um, that we talked before uh, several episodes ago about the difference between thinking it's the church's job to build the kingdom or to witness to a kingdom that God is already inaugurating in that already but not yet tension. And um, that when we get ourselves convinced that it's up to us to make the kingdom of God happen, we easily persuade ourselves any means are nece- any means that are necessary we will use, even if it's at the point of a sword or building an army, because you know, whatever it takes for us to get in power and then we can make things righteous, we sort of lost the 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 thread there. That's not it's not our job to make the kingdom happen. It's God who's building the kingdom and we get to be a part of what God's up to. But there's an important distinction there. There's a line I came across again recently of Leslie Newbigin, the 20th century missiologist, who said, when the church tries to embody the rule of God in the forms of earthly power, it may achieve that power, but it is no longer a sign of the kingdom. And that, to mm-hmm. me, like that gets it. Like when when we do try and use the levers of temporal power, um, we might find ourselves, yep, we occupy power, but then we've stopped being what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like the moment we've done that. Um, and to me, it feels like so many times in history, Christians have sort of forgotten that. They've sort of assumed, nope, once we get into power, then we can make everything perfect. But we've we've lost what the way the kingdom actually works because it's not this compulsory thing, but Jesus' imagery for it is more like the yeast that works from within the dough. It's the salt that is that small presence that transforms the whole. It's the light, the small light that shines in the darkness from the hilltop, not this dominating presence. And, and to me, those central metaphors are important because none of those are like a top-down dictatorial thing. You know, they're this small, subtle presence in the larger whole that doesn't pretend to be dominating the whole. If, you're, if your bread tastes only like yeast, you're making it wrong. So are there other ways that we should be mindful, maybe in any of our individual lives as well, unless any of us are occupying the seats of power right now? Are there other ways that we should be mindful about how to avoid this temptation to temporal power or worldly power uh, in our ordinary day-to-day lives? I come back to the words, and we were talking about this before we started recording, of Jesus in Mark 8 about taking up your cross. Mm-hmm. And and that's how Jesus took up his power, mm-hmm. and you know that's his call to us as his disciples is to take up our own cross and to follow him. Um, doesn't mean that everything's going to be painful, 
doesn't mean everything's going to be pretty either. Mm -hmm. Um, But that if it looks like what Jesus would do, then that's good and right. If it looks like taking up a sword rather than the cross, Mm -hmm. maybe we need to investigate that a little bit more. That reminds me too, a little bit later on in Mark, there comes that point when James and John want to have the seats of, you know, posi- uh, position mm-hmm. and privilege next to him. And Jesus' response to me feels like it's in many ways very much in line with our conversation. He says, you know that among the Gentiles, yeah, their they're great ones are tyrants and they use power that way. And then Jesus says, but it is not so among you. It's not even the conditional. It might be or it doesn't have to be. It isn't that way among you. But whoever wants to be the greatest puts himself in the position of least. And if you want to be the leader, you have to be the servant. And then he points to his own example and says, after all, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But that notion of like, this is at the heart of who Jesus is and what he's called his followers to be. So we can't we can't do a little sleight of hand and go, mm-hmm. well, Jesus went to a cross, but now Jesus, you know, that's only for Jesus. We're supposed to control the levers of power. No, Jesus says his example is the 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 key signature for how the, the Christian song goes too. And that he sees that as very much in contrast to the way the world around uses power. Yeah, the, the world's going to keep operating like that. They're going to keep having bullies be in power and dominate and, and force other people to do what they want. That's not how we do things around here. Um, so that pointing us back to Jesus seems important. And when he tells the disciples that, you know, Peter says, well, no, 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 Jesus, that's not the way. And Jesus is like, nope, get behind me, dude. Like, this is the way. Right, right. And as as you point out there in that in that scene in, in Mark 8, Jesus even goes further. You get behind me, Satan, right? It's sort of this Thanks. recognition mm-hmm. that now Simon Peter himself is doing the job that the tempter had done back in the wilderness, right? That in some ways, it's that same temptation just rearing its head in a new form again. Um, so it's not like Jesus only faced temptation for 40 days and then graduated. But every yeah. day is that constant choice. Will I continue on this trajectory or will I give in to the, any of the other options around me? So it's a challenge because it's day by day, but hopefully our conversation here maybe shines a little light on the path of why it, it's so important that we not give into that temptation to worldly power and that Jesus offers us the example of here's what it could look like to resist and point to a different way. So we're going to explore some other kinds of temptations coming up in these uh, following weeks of ways that we in the church continue to be tempted to miss the mark in the way of Jesus. We hope you'll join us on this Lenten journey here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all.